podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Oh, all right, yeah. How about yourself? Getting over a cold, mm-hmm. which came at the most inopportune time because this is the weekend between finishing my previous job and starting my new job on Monday. I don't know. That's kind of opportune because, like, at least it's coming when you aren't working like it didn't I mean I guess hit I am on... technically unemployed right now. Right, like it didn't hit on Monday. Like there's a good chance you'll be over it by the time you start your new job. Okay. I've been hit with the cold at the most opportune time. Yes, there you ah. go. Mhm. Got to look on the bright side of these things. Yeah. Speaking of bright side, dark side, what are we watching today? <laughs> it's dark side cuz it's a horror movie. Right. Well, Sarah, uh today we're watching The Crime of Dr. Crespi. Does he make good cookies? No, that's Mr. Christie. Ah. Uh, This is the second horror film in a row that we're seeing that's distributed by Republic Pictures. Oof. So this is uh, another Poverty Row horror film. And like so many of these movies that we've seen, it's based on an Edgar Allan Poe short story. Who's that? (laughs) And like, here's the thing about this, Sarah. And we've talked about how the rationale behind these adaptations was like giving like literary legitimacy to Mm -hmm. this genre and stuff. And I'm trying to think like of all the based on Edgar Allan Poe movies we've seen, have like any of them actually been accurate to the Poe source material? Perhaps Murders in the Rue Morgue is probably the closest. I mean, even then, that went, like, pretty far afield from, like, what the point of that short story... Like, like the actual short story is just, like, this super brief scene that they get over and done with, like, as quick as possible. Yeah. And, like, so many of the rest of these, it's just, like, this, like, inspired by kind of attitude. Then perhaps the other closest one would be the first Eerie Tales, Unheimlicher Geschichten. Um, I mean, that was more of an anthology, but the one that was based on the Black Cat, besides its weird time period setting, it followed what happens. I mean, it introduced that love triangle element that wasn't really there in the original. But I mean, like, plot point-wise. Mm. Follow the House of Usher! Follow the House of Usher. Yeah, no, we should have thought of that. Yeah, that one, that one is an adaptation. Like, that's straight up an actual adaptation of Fall of the House of Usher, instead of just, you know, well, there's a house in the movie... And one of the characters, his middle name is Usher. Like, you know what I yeah, mean? Like, totally. Which has been what a lot of... And I think that's what we're going to see here today. Because uh, The Crime of Dr. Crespi is based on the short story, The Premature Burial. Yeah. So what's that story about? Well, a guy is afraid of being buried prematurely. Right. Does he get <laughs> buried prematurely? Does he? Hmm. Do I have to read and find out? Uh, maybe. Um... Does he get amontillado'd? No. Okay. Poe's short story, it was published in 1844 in the Philadelphia Dollar newspaper. Sorry, I know that like in 1844, like a dollar is actually probably a lot of money, but like <laughs> so it's probably my... more like a journal. Right. But it's like... My no. 2018 brain hears like the dollar newspaper and I think of like a dollar store and like cheap shit. Oh yeah, fair yeah. enough. He published this about, about five years before his death. 
okay. kind of give you an idea of where he where he's at. Mm-hmm. As is what is the title, uh, the story features this unnamed narrator who is very, very afraid of being buried alive. Um, and apparently this fear was pretty common during the time. The fear okay. is called uh, tephophobia. It's not the most irrational fear. In 1905, social reformer William Tebb collected cases, up to 219 cases of premature burial, including 149 actual live burials, 10 cases of live dissections, and 2 cases of people waking up during embalming. Kind of the source of this fear comes from people falling into a coma or a similar kind of paralyzed state, being mistaken for dead, and then, you know, you wake up uh, trapped in a coffin. When they suspect there's been a case of this, they, you know, exhume the body, and it's taken that they were buried alive if the corpse has kind of moved from that traditional pose. Mm. Um, if there's claw marks inside, <laughs> obviously... You open up the casket and there's a look of horror and on someone's face and, and their arms are all clawed up. Exactly, yeah. So damage to the hands, to the knees, mm. that kind of thing. Other evidence for live burials is seeing what, what looks like the hair has grown and the nails have grown upon exhumation. Um, ironically, as we've talked about in vampire episodes, that's taken as evidence for undead vampires. Yeah, and I thought in our vampire episode we also talked about, like, that's just because, like, your skin kind of shrinks and retracts as you decompose. Exactly, yeah. Coincidentally, like vampires, this fear of being buried alive correlates to the spread of a particular disease. Mm-hmm. In this case, cholera. Mm-hmm. Cholera's first pandemic struck Asia, 1817 to 24, um, but the second pandemic from 1829 to 51 came to more parts of the world from Eastern Europe to even North America. And it's estimated that between 1832 and 1849, around 150,000 Americans died from cholera. Uh, now the link between cholera and the fear of being buried alive is cholera leads to extreme dehydration and electrolyte loss, which can lead to comas. Mm. Now, as you kind of mentioned before, Ben, with hair and nails growing, that's a sign of decomposition because, like, your, your skin's dehydrated and whatever. And you're not the first to kind of point out that, like, hey, maybe these people aren't being buried alive. Maybe it's just another step of decomposition. And kind of the most prominent person who has argued this is folklorist Paul Barber, who argues that, yeah, cases of live burials are actually overstated. It's actually just decomposition. Hmm. Whether Barber is correct or not is kind of moot, because this was a fear that ran rampant enough for the construction of safety coffins. (laughs) People specifically, like, writing in their will that, like, hey... Don't bury me for, like, up to two days. You know, make sure right. that I'm dead. And Leave actually, me rotting on the couch. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, one such case as uh, someone asking to be beheaded when she's presumed dead to avoid such a fate. You know, if you think I'm dead, cut off my head, make sure I'm actually dead. Well, that so I don't really... actually die in the coffin. Okay, but I mean, like, that doesn't... So you're not actually dead. Like, maybe you're just in a coma and you're like, okay, but then just kill me. Like... That's not a great safety valve. <laughs> safety coffins offer a broad range of designs. <laughs> <laughs> no, just two ninety nine. Exactly. You too can call Be insured <laughs> that you will be saved if you are buried alive in your coffin. Tired of 
being buried alive. <laughs> While they had these broad range of designs, um, they all kind of relied on the introduction of some way for the buried person to signal for help. The first construction of such a coffin was in 1792 by Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick, who wanted a window installed so you could see right. the person, a tube to allow fresh air from the outside into his coffin, and instead of nailing the coffin shut, it was locked from the inside, and he had keys buried with him. Huh, that's kind of clever. Other designs include the impractical string to a bell uh, where you would ring it mm -hmm. if you were trapped inside. Better hope that the uh, groundskeeper at the graveyard's doing like regular rounds for someone to hear you. Totally. A tube that would lead down into the coffin so a priest could smell decomposition to make sure that you oh. are actually decomposing oh. um, or hear calls for help. What's the difference between the smell of decomposition and the smell of someone who's just been trapped in a small space panicking and sweating with no ability to clean themselves for several days? Uh, the sound? I guess. That's fair. Good point. And in 1829, Dr. Johann Gottfried Teberger invented this design where strings would be attached to the deceased's hands for bells uh, that would lead up to the top and tubes to pump air into the coffin until help arrived. Hmm. As you can imagine, all of these designs would be quite impractical, but also quite expensive. Yeah. So in everything that I read uh, regarding premature burials, the authors would add that this fear, you know, it existed before Poe, but Poe really stoked it. <laughs> you know, he really capitalized on it. Sure, like how nobody was really afraid of their showers before Psycho came out. Totally. And of course we can see how Poe, you know, utilize this fear uh, in his stories in this particular short story, but he also uses this idea in his other stories like 1835's Berenice, 1839's The Fall of the House of Usher, 1843's The Black Cat, and 1846's The Cask of Amontillado. Right, yeah, there's all kind of like a... They're all about the same shit. Yeah, with varying degrees of how premature is it. Sure. You know, in well, the case of Cask of Amontillado, dude hasn't even been presumed dead. He's just getting buried. Yeah, it's, it's burial as a method of murder. Yeah. So the plot of the premature burial from 1844, an unnamed narrator describes his cataleptic condition, where he will randomly fall into death-like trances. Mm-hmm. This condition means his fear of premature burial is warranted, and he describes in the story cases of such burials. Many of them, you know, the people get saved in time, but there's one particular case where the person is not. Mm -hmm. He decides to build an elaborate tomb so as to signal for help should this happen. Uh, he has friends promise to wait to bury him, etc., etc. You know, all these safety coffins type of deal. Sure. The climax comes with his fear coming true. He awakes in darkness and is confined, and he struggles, but he can't seem to get free. Um, none of his precautions actually helped at all. As he calls out for help, people kind of like shake him awake, and it turns out he was actually just asleep in a small boat. He's fine. Okay. And this shock of being like, oh, thank God I wasn't actually buried alive, gets him out of this obsession with death. The end. Huh. Right? It's not, not what I expected to find when researching the short story. But it also is, like, enough or little enough of a short story. There's not much to the short story. Right. So I have no idea 
how it's going to be adapted into this film. I feel like it's almost, you know, to the advantage of a filmmaker to adapt, you know, if you're adapting a short story, to adapt source material that has next to nothing there. Because then you can basically make the movie anything and still claim, like, ah, we're adapting this thing. So, The Crime of Dr. Crespi, as I mentioned, it's uh, distributed by Republic Pictures. And as we talked about in last week's episode, Republic was a union of six Poverty Row production companies into one entity so that they could sort of pool their resources and take on the majors. And as an entity, uh, it was fairly new at this point, having sort of just come into being during 1935. What's interesting about this movie is that it actually isn't from the production departments of any one of those six entities. It's instead the work of a completely independent producer working with Republic for distribution. Hmm. Uh, And his name is John H. Auer. Is he related to Misha Auer? No, no relation. Okay. Now, Auer was born in Hungary in 1906, and he was a child actor in the Hungarian stage. He did not continue as an actor when he grew up, uh, so he sort of grew out of being a child actor. And he moved to America in 1928, hoping to become a movie director. He failed at that. Uh, nobody was looking to hire some fresh-off-the-boat Hungarian former child actor. So he moved to Mexico, where he eventually made three feature films. <laughs> El Comediante in 1931, Una Vida por Otra in 1932, and Su Ultima Cancion in 1933. He wrote, produced, and directed these films, and they were critically and commercially successful in Mexico. Good for him. So, he managed to parlay this success into a return to Hollywood, where he made a deal with Republic Pictures. He would write, direct, and produce his own films, and then Republic would distribute. He also wouldn't do westerns. Uh, which was sort of Republic's bread and butter. The Crime of Dr. Crespi would be his first English-language film and the first film produced under his deal with Republic. Hmm. That being said, the craziest thing about this movie isn't the guy who directed it. It's the person who's starring in it. Okay. And that's Eric von Stroheim, one of the most famous auteur directors of the silent film era. Have we seen something by him before? I feel like we've mentioned his name before. We've talked about him before in previous episodes. We've not seen any of his movies. Uh, He didn't do horror films, at least when he was directing. (laughs) So if you've ever seen, like, a movie director portrayed as, like, this dictator with a monocle and a bullhorn wearing jodhpurs and, like, riding boots... Yeah, the big poofy pants. Yeah, and wondered why the hell that is the stereotype of a movie director. Um, well, that's that's Eric von Stroheim. Oh. Um, and that was an old reference even in those 1940s Looney Tune <laughs> cartoons. Like, that reference was old even then. So, Stroheim was born in Vienna, Austria in 1885 as Eric Oswald Stroheim to a middle-class Jewish family. When he immigrated to America in 1909, he gave his name as Count Eric Oswald Hans Karl Maria von Stroheim und Nordenwall, son of Austrian nobility. Dude knows when to gamble. Yeah, so this should give you an idea of what kind of person Stroheim was. 
he's not von Stroheim. He's not noble, but he claimed it, even though he came to America at a young enough age that, like, by the time he was in Hollywood, he'd forgotten any German he once knew and, like, had completely lost his accent. Yeah. But was still like, no, I'm Count Eric von Stroheim. <laughs> So by 1914, Stroheim was working in Hollywood as a German culture consultant. For who? Just like for whoever museums? would hire... No, for movies. Oh. If you needed German costumes or characters, like sure. he, would, he would be the consultant on German culture in your movie. Okay. Uh, he began acting, slowly but surely, in D.W. Griffith films, uh, as well as serving as an assistant director for Griffith. During World War I, his acting career sort of took off because he began playing these sneering German officer villains mm. who would do things like toss crying babies out of windows. <laughs> Real ludicrous stereotypes. Oh my god. Like intense yeah. anti-German cliches is like what he made his bread and butter playing as an actor. After the war, uh, he began writing and directing his own films, occasionally starring in them as well. He gained a reputation for being dictatorial on set, as well as being very antagonistic to his actors. Mm. He filmed Super Jewels for Universal Pictures, uh, including Foolish Wives in 1922, which was the first movie to cost a million dollars. During the filming of 1923's Merry-Go-Round, then-Universal executive Irving Thalberg fired Stroheim for cost overruns and replaced him with Rupert Julian, who would then go on to direct Phantom of the Opera for Universal. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know where we've talked about von Stroheim before, it's in our Phantom of the Opera episode when I was discussing the history of the Universal Super Jewel, because that was really what von Stroheim innovated. These, right. These giant, big-budget movies. Right. In 1924, Stroheim made the film that he's probably most known for today, uh, which was Greed, an ambitious project made for Goldwyn Pictures. He shot on location, he used accurate period costuming and details, and in general he created a demanding, perfectionist set. The first cut of Greed ran ten hours long, my God. And while it was considered to be a masterpiece by those who saw it in early previews, Stroheim knew this was too long. So he worked to cut it down to six hours, with the intention that it would be shown in two parts over two nights. Okay. The studio balked at that, so Stroheim was forced to cut it down again to four hours long. Then Goldwyn Pictures was bought out and merged into Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Mm -hmm. And MGM took Greed away from Stroheim and had it cut down to two and a half hours and then had the cut footage destroyed. Oh my god. Stroheim disowned the final film and while Greed today as a two and a half hour movie is sort of considered to be like a masterpiece of silent film cinema, certainly there's, you know, the full version is one of those great lost movies that people like to speculate about. Sure. As the 1920s went on, he continued to make commercially successful films. You know, all the movies he made that came out did do well commercially. But his controlling perfectionist attitude and his insistence on artistic freedom led to constant conflicts with the studios. So truly the original auteur. Yeah. After Queen Kelly in 1929 and Walking Down Broadway in the early 30s, two consecutive films that Stroheim was fired from by studio executives, he 
kind of couldn't find work as a director anymore, and he turned back to acting, uh, but found that even that career was on a downward slope due to bad blood with studio executives. Mm. So after appearing in one A picture for RKO and another for MGM, by 1934, Von Stroheim, who was once considered one of the three greatest directors in Hollywood, found himself starring in Poverty Row pictures for Chesterfield and Mascot, directed by the likes of Frank Strayer, um, and generally playing the same villainous World War I Germans he had at the start of his career. He must have had to bite his tongue a lot working with these okay directors, Mm. but like... Yeah, having to, like, not take over. Yeah. The Crime of Dr. Crespi, a low-budget horror movie from a neophyte director, was perhaps the lowest ebb of Stroheim's entire career before he would move to France and reinvigorate his acting career there when he appeared in 1937's Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir. Good for him. Yeah, it sucks that we're seeing him at his lowest point, but it's cool that, you know... He bounces back. Yeah, as an actor, he never quite managed to become a big director again. One of his sort of most famous later roles is he appears in the 1950s film noir Sunset Boulevard as a disgraced former silent film director. So as himself. Yes. That's a really good movie, if you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard. So also appearing in this film, alongside Von Stroheim, in the highest billing he would ever receive in his career is our old favorite Dwight Fry. Hmm. Hopelessly typecast in Hollywood as a maniac, Fry had mostly been acting on Broadway during this period. Uh, This was his first film since his truncated appearance in Bride of Frankenstein. So despite this being a return to the horror genre, uh, the role is actually against type for Fry, which probably explains why he took it. Yeah. There's a, a minor actress in this film who's worth noting, mainly because we're going to be seeing much more of her later down the road. Okay. So she was born Ruby Kelly in 1915 of a Canadian father and Costa Rican mother. She began her entertainment career as a singer in New York under the stage name Jean Kelly, so as not to be confused with actress Ruby Keller. She was discovered by Von Stroheim and her first acting role in a feature film was this appearance in Crime of Dr. Crespi. When we next see her, she'll be acting under the name Jean Brooks, but that won't be until the 1940s and the entrance of RKO into the horror genre. Okay. So The Crime of Dr. Crespi was shot in eight days. Wow. Is that, that's really short, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of how a lot of these Poverty Row films were, just kind (laughs) of churned out. Von Stroheim privately called it to friends the crime of Republic Pictures. Uh, It is now in the public domain. No, are you sure? (laughs) And so it's on our YouTube playlist. All right. Well, friends, if you'd like to watch along, you can find this YouTube playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be back after watching The Crime of Dr. Christie. Dr. Crespi. The Crime of Mr. Crespi. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive is 
is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Crime of Dr. Crespi. From 1935, directed by... John H.R. Well... Well, that was a movie. The real crime was the pacing. <laughs> yeah, that was a movie is a good way to sum it up, in that it was there on the screen for an hour. A long, long hour. Hey! <laughs> so, um, so here's the plot. Dr. Crespi, uh, which is Eric von Stroheim's character, he is the chief surgeon at, like, a private clinic. The Taft Clinic. Right. That does, like, surgeries and, like, births and, like, all the stuff that, like, a hospital would do, but it's, like, a private, like, recommendation-only clinic. Like, you have to get a recommendation from a physician to go there. So I guess... It's really only for, like, when you go to the hospital and the hospital doctor's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, and then they send you to the TAP clinic. So Crespi's the head surgeon. Uh, there's also Dwight Fry's character, Dr. Thomas, who's, like, another surgeon at the clinic. And then there's some other characters who work there who don't matter. Another character, Dr. Ross, who does not work at the clinic, he gets into a car accident and has to be operated on, and a bunch of other doctors are like, wah, wah, wah. so they send him to the Taft Clinic and Dr. Crespi. Now, the twist is that Dr. Ross's wife, Estelle, is like an old girlfriend of Crespi's, and Stephen Ross, the doctor who needs the operation, used to be Crespi's assistant, and they fell in love and got married, and Crespi still, like, worked up about it five years later. So he agrees to operate on Ross, and everyone's like, wow, that's the best operating job you've ever done, and it saved Ross's life, and so on. But Crespi then goes to, like, check up on Ross, and is like, oh, you know, his, his pulse is a little irregular. I'll give him a shot of something. <laughs> and uh, then Ross, like, immediately dies after that, and uh, Estelle is heartbroken, and no one seems to find that weird at first. Uh, Dr. Thomas goes to Crespi's office to go get the death certificate, which Crespi already has filled out with the correct time, and he gives it to Thomas, and Thomas is like, hmm, that's weird. They take Ross's body down to the morgue of this clinic, and late at night, midnight, uh, a shadowy figure in like a slouch hat and a trench coat steals into the morgue, and it's Crespi. He pulls the sheet off of Ross's dead body and starts... Dead? Exactly. So it turns out that Ross has merely been injected with, like, a paralyzing agent where he can still hear everything, still feel everything, hear, feel, and see. He can still 
sense the world around him, but he can't move at all, so everyone just assumes he's dead, even though there's, there's a lot more to being dead than that. Anyways, <laughs> so um, Crespi sort of gloats to Ross about how, like, Ross is going to see the casket Crespi's picked out for him. He's going to see the flowers Crespi's picked out for him. He's going to get to watch his own funeral. He's going to get to watch as his casket gets lowered into the earth, and, and he's going to be buried prematurely. Hey! Um, there's the Poe in all this. Right. And uh, Crespi sort of gloats to him about all of this and, you know, how probably eventually he'll steal Estelle and, and so on. Uh, the deal with the paralyzing agent is it only works for 24 hours. So uh, Crespi has to keep giving him injections of it 24 hours until they bury him, and then once that happens, he'll be buried alive and he'll die of... Asphyxiation. Right. So the next day, uh, because things move very quickly here, they have Ross's funeral, and uh, before Crespi goes to leave for the funeral, Thomas shows up and he's like, Hey, you poisoned him. And I know it, and I'm going to tell everybody, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. So Crespi chokes out Thomas. Uh, doesn't kill him. Totally could have, but doesn't. Instead, he, he bounds up Thomas, gags him, and tosses him in a closet in Crespi's office. Then he goes to the funeral. They bury Ross. After the funeral, Crespi comes back, lets Thomas out of the closet, still doesn't kill him, and instead, like, tries to gaslight him by saying, you know, you're nuts. I had to bind you and toss you into the closet for your own good. You should be, you know, don't go around saying crazy stuff like that, or else I'm going to have to send you to, like, the An loony. Asylum. Yeah, exactly. So Thomas immediately goes to one of the other doctors, uh, Dr. Arnold, and is like, hey, so this is what he did to me. He killed that other guy. Help me dig up the body. And we'll do an autopsy and prove it. And Dr. Arnold's like, I don't know. Seems like a lot of effort. <laughs> Two of them go to the graveyard. They dig up Ross's body. They bring it back to the clinic. They start to do an autopsy when Ross sits up on the table like a zombie because it's midnight and the drug's worn off. Ross then goes to Crespi's office. And Crespi, since letting Thomas go after the funeral to now, a.k.a. midnight, has just been in his office drinking. So when Ross shows up, Thomas thinks that Ross is like... A ghost. A ghost and or alcoholic hallucination. Uh, and then realizes that he isn't. And that's right when his wife, Estelle, Dr. Thomas, and Dr. Arnold all burst into the office. And they see Stephen there. Crespi pulls a gun on everyone and then kind of realizes his situation's hopeless. So he kills himself. The off end. screen. Well, in between cuts. Yeah, like, like yeah, we yeah, see... Yeah, fair enough. That's a, that's, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, there's a distinction there. Yeah, he's got the gun, and then he says, like, you know, well, that's it for me. And then we hear the gunshot when we cut to the faces of everybody else in the room and see their reactions, and then we come back, and he's slumped over in the chair. Uh, and then Arnold becomes the new chief surgeon. The end. Dwight Fry almost gets a date. Almost, yeah. The end. So it's an hour long, this movie, and... From my plot summary, you might have an idea in your head of, like, how the pacing is and how the story's structured, but you really don't, because 90% of this movie is Eric von Stroheim sitting in his office having a cigarette. Or seeing the hospital processes. Right? Yeah. Nurses answering phones being like, she gave birth to how many kids? <laughs> yeah. Or, like, 
Like, there's a whole subplot about this Italian guy and his wife getting five kids. Anyways. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of, like, day in the life of a hospital staff stuff in here with, like, switchboard operators and nurses and people, you know, oh, he's not in his office right now. Can I take a message? And, like, a whole subplot I didn't even mention about how Arnold and this one secretary, like, want to be in love, but she's Crespi's secretary, so she's busy all the time, and that's yeah. a problem. Like, tons of other stuff here, but also literally just long stretches of silence as Eric von Stroheim sits at his desk and has a cigarette. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, Stroheim only did this movie so he could write his cigarette costs off on, like, a tax receipt or something. Yeah, like, he's he's smoking in every scene, and it's, like, a new cigarette in every shot. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, like, it's not even that, like, they padded out time with showing the hospital processes and everything. It's that when we actually get to something that's good. Like, yes, I, I signed up to see, like, parts of this surgery or, like, the creepy factor or anything like that. It's just, like, cut, cut, cut. Yeah, like, if you made a an edit of this movie that was just the parts of it that are actually a horror movie, like, this would be five minutes. Probably. And it's it feels like something the director's doing on purpose, almost, where all the scenes that actually have some horror element, like the, um, the surgery and the scene where Crespi's, like, taunting him in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Even the burial scene. The burial scene, uh, the scene where he attacks Thomas, the scene where they do the autopsy and the guy wakes up. All those scenes are cut really staccato and really quickly, as if, like, to give it some energy and some tension. But then the rest of the movie's so languid of just these long-held shots of people just taking their coats on and off. It's not so much like it's a contrast as it's just torturous. (laughs) I wonder if Auer saw some Hitchcock films and were like, ah, I'll cut faster when I want the tension to ramp up, Um, but didn't realize that you need to, like, ramp up. He just figured it was like an on-and-off switch. Yeah, or like... The only other thing, like, it's either on purpose because they thought it would have more impact, or it's on purpose because they thought the quicker they got the horror stuff over with, the less the censors would give them shit for it. Like, I'm not sure what part of it they're doing, but yeah, like, there is some good, I don't know if they're good, there's some potentially good scenes in this movie, right? Yeah, there's moments where the lighting is really interesting, and probably the... It's not like a standout moment of the film in comparison to other films, but like the best scene of this particular movie Mm -hmm. is when Stroheim, as Crespi, sneaks into the morgue and is taunting Dr. Ross. Yeah, that's the best scene in the movie. And then like practically all in black with just some light on his face and on Ross's face. Yeah, the other good scenes are when Ross wakes up during the autopsy is pretty creepy and like the burial scene is pretty good and like the surgery scene is pretty good. Yeah, the problem is that that's like two and a half minutes of this movie mm-hmm. and the rest of it is just long stretches of nothing. Just nothing. <laughs> well, as you said during the movie, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. This movie's biggest strength It's that we were having a lot of fun watching this movie, I think, but it was not intentional on the part of the movie's fun. We were having... Fun at the expense. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where that falls on the quality line. Like, is a movie that's so bad that you can have fun laughing at it better or worse than a movie that's so bad that you can't have fun? Like, that it's so bad that you can't even take joy 
at making fun of it, you know? I mean, this was on the line. Like, they were able to make fun of it, but there were points where I was just like, okay, come on. Yeah. Well, especially, like, the first... 20 minutes. Yeah, like, it. it's important to say that, like, all the stuff about, like, Ross and the surgery and all of that, like, the actual plot, that doesn't even start until 20 minutes into the movie. Like, yeah. the first 20 minutes are just these, like scenes at the hospital going about its day like regularly so you're just saying that like what the heck is this movie like where are we going with any of this yeah if this movie has a strength because it doesn't have a lot of strengths like yeah totally bad directing bad sets bad script all the hallmarks of a cheap quickly shot low budget movie but if the movie has strengths it's that stroheim is a good actor he was too inconsistent for me. He'd go from being like, yes, give me my coffee, to then suddenly just being way too intense with Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. Like, when we first meet Dwight Fry in this movie, just being so overly intense. Mm-hmm. What I mean to say is that, like, I don't know if his performance in this movie is good, mm. but he is better than this movie, and you can tell by watching this movie. Okay, like, I would agree with that. You know what I mean? Like, like he's... He's not good because this movie isn't good, and you can tell that there's scenes that interested him that he was into performing, and there's other scenes where, like, he's clearly just not even putting in the effort because it's so far beneath his... Skill. Yeah, and attention. But he's got enough... Even though he's not really giving it his all, Stroheim's got enough screen presence that he makes me like watching him, like, like watching the character of Dr. Crespi, who, like... Stroheim sort of characterizes as just being, like, a total piece of shit. Yeah. And that's kind of fun. And it's one of those, like, drop of water in the desert kind of things that you get with these Poverty Row movies because oftentimes the actors in them are so bland that even if, like, there is something good about the movie, you can't get into it because the actors have no screen presence. That's sort of like what condemned to live was last week was like there were some interesting ideas but the acting has no magnetism stroheim's not giving a great performance here but he's got enough screen charisma on his own to like at least give you something to latch on to um and fry's pretty good in this too yeah i was going to say i i feel the same way about fry yeah like everyone else in this movie is a nobody and you can see why and somehow this really garbage movie managed to land both Dwight Fry and Eric von Stroheim, and that alone makes at least portions of this movie watchable. Okay. Well, the best way to figure out if a movie you can laugh at is better or worse than a movie you can be scared at is to go into ranking. So where I was looking was in the 50s. My range was 50 to 62. So basically from from 50 down. I think number 50 currently is Night of Terror. Yes. Night of Terror is really where the list goes to, like, really <laughs> bad. Yeah. Like, right above Night of Terror, you have movies like La Llorona, where it's like, this is bad, but you were trying. Yeah. And then from Night of Terror down, it's like, no, this is just bad. I couldn't figure out where I wanted this to go, because, like, there were parts of this movie watching it where I was like, well, this is even worse than Condemned to Live. Because Condemned to Live, you can at least tell, is a horror movie throughout most of it. Because it's shooting on those old Universal sets, and it's got, you know, cobwebs and hunchbacks and all that kind of stuff. And this movie, there are vast stretches where it just seems to be like some weird procedural. <laughs> but then, like I was saying before in the discussion, like, 
Stroheim and Fry make the movie enjoyable enough to watch that I, I had a better time watching it than Condemned to Live. You know, so where does it go in here? Yeah, kind of just speaking in terms of, like, just kind of speaking in terms of enjoyment, I feel like I was feeling, like, definitely below Night of Terror, but I um, probably above uh, the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde. So you're feeling that, like, Bela Lugosi slumming it is better than Eric von Stroheim slumming it? Yeah, well, because Night of Terror had that, like, oh, it's not the weird immigrant person. <laughs> sure. You know? It, it felt like it was, like, trying a little bit more. Whereas here, it's just, like, a standard type of thing. Okay, this movie isn't as weird, but it's got the same really amateur feeling that uh, Maniac had. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, Maniac is bizarre because it's way off out there in exploitation land. And this movie, you know, at least is a semi-respectable Republic Pictures film. But I feel like, you know, before in the intro we were talking about how John H. Hour made this deal with Republic that he would make all of his films himself. You know, and he was this independent thing to himself in Republic that wasn't with any of the six other studios. And... Having seen the movie now, it's like, oh, maybe that's a bad thing. Because, like, this has the same feeling that, like, you know, if someone who had no idea how to make movies got, like, a couple thousand bucks and rented some equipment and some friends and shot some stuff at their workplace over the weekend, this has that feel, except it somehow has two actual real actors in it. And that makes it feel like Maniac to me. <laughs> It's funny, I was thinking um, along the same lines of comparing it to Maniac, but for completely different reasons. Okay. Um, the crime of Dr. Crespi has such long... Like, we talked about the pacing, where we just get these long stretches of just seeing how a hospital operates, and then when we actually get to the good stuff, we just cut through it. Right. And I remember... I don't know if I yelled it at the screen or if I was just thinking it, but, like, why would you feel... If you need to pad time... Why would you fill it with boring shit mm. rather than exciting shit? Right. And then as I was looking at where to rank it before we started discussing, I realized that like the opposite of this movie in terms of pacing is Sex Maniac, where you're just like getting weird shit thrown at you <laughs> all the fucking time. There's no like long stretches of boring shit because they just keep throwing shit at you. Sure. I mean, like, you could maybe say, like, the long stretches of boring shit is, like, the police slowly getting to the doctor or whatever. Yeah, but that's, like, you know, you don't have to sit with that for any length of time. Totally. So, it, <laughs> I think that they're comparable in, like, that really interesting way. Like, they're on two sides of a, of a weird spectrum of, like, soap opera pacing and, like, documentary pacing, you know? Well, the thing about it is this. Most of Crime of Dr. Crespi's issues come from the fact that like they clearly spent like a hundred dollars on it right <laughs> like there's certain things that when you get really low in your budgets start to become common in movies and it's not just bad acting and bad writing and bad directing and everything like that there's certain things of like oh wow most of this movie takes place in this one room huh like, you get a lot of that, right? Yeah. There's just certain limitations because you can't go anywhere or do anything. And I feel like the advantage that exploitation movies have, once you get into that really low budget area over 
respectable films, is that if you're an exploitation film and you have no money, you can at least put some tits on the screen. Or you can, <laughs> you know, have some extreme violence. Or you can show some weird-ass stuff that no one's ever seen before. You know, like, Maniac could... Something else to draw people in. Right. Maniac could throw two cats in front of the camera and have them fight each other for, like, five minutes for something to do. Right? Don't talk about those two women that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when you're outside of respectable filmmaking and you have no money, you can rely on other more morally questionable things uh, to to, to sort of put on screen. And when you don't have that, you're just kind of stuck with nothing. Well, it's, I think it's not even that, like, I think you make a good point, but if you were to go for, like, yeah, we'll just throw whatever at the audience and just kind of make it a soap opera style, so much coming at you at once, but in, like, a horror Mm -hmm. genre, I guess, that's a lot of stuff that, like, maybe they didn't even have the budget for. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's long stretches of just, like, the secretary sitting at her desk or... Crespi sitting at his desk. Yeah, it like, doesn't cost anything. doesn't cost anything because you had to have those sets anyways. Yeah, exactly. So I think, like, it's not so much like you can throw some tits at the screen. I think it's more like you know what you are in the sense of, like, yeah, we'll just go into this guy's backyard for a minute and quickly shoot and then leave. And, like, you have no qualms about low-budget shit, whereas yeah. if you're a studio, even if it's a Poverty Row studio, you're kind, you're still trying to be like, no, we'll have sets. Yeah, you're trying to pretend it's a real movie. We'll have a matte painting at the end of this hallway so it can seem like it's a window. Yeah, I mean, what I meant with my, my argument there was that, like, tits don't cost anything, right? <laughs> like, if, if you don't have any oh money <laughs> and you're looking for what to do to, like, make your movie exciting... <laughs> The things that don't cost anything and are exciting are the things you can't put in a Hollywood movie. Episode 55, Tits Don't Cost Anything. (laughs) Brought to you by Scream Scene. Follow us on Twitter. Hashtag Tits Don't Cost Anything. Oh my god, Ben. <laughs> okay, are we cool putting this below Sex Maniac? Um, is it better than The Monster Walks? That was just like, I remember being so like, ugh, because The Monster Walks is just like this guy pretending to be a monster or whatever, right? I thought they were It was going the to... one with the gorilla in the basement. Yeah, I thought that they were going to do something interesting where like the paraplegic guy was actually right. the monster. And no, it was actually the... Just a monster. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That, that, because they didn't lean into that possibility, I, I, I yeah. I, I feel like because we've done a really good comparison between Crime of Dr. Crespi and Sex Maniac, I feel like Sex Maniac, it makes sense to put Maniac above. Monster Walks, there was nothing like kind of exciting about it. There were... Misha Auer was like the only notable person I remember you talking about in it. The thing about Crespi is like, it's a bad movie... But certainly some value needs to be given to Stroheim and Fry sort of saving the day in terms of making it watchable. I think everything else below this on the list in terms of, like, actors has nobody who redeems it in that sort of way. Like, there are stuff about Crespi that might be worse than, you know, Wolf Blood or House of Mystery or even Condemned to Live in terms of production value. Like, Condemned to Live, like, has 
like a village set and a cave and and like several houses and like a lot more production value honestly but like Crespi manages to be mildly watchable at least because it has those two actors in it yeah okay yeah then I'm fine with that uh so entering the list at number 52 is The Crime of Dr. Crespi from 1935 directed by John H. Auer if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to other films, other episodes, and you'll also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals if you feel like a film should be ranked at a different place than what it currently is. And you can also send suggestions, questions, concerns, anything of that sort through there as well. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. The more positive reviews we receive, the more the show is featured and able to be found by other people on iTunes. Uh, we also appreciate leaving comments, ratings, reviews on any other platforms that you can, uh, like SoundCloud. And offline, you can just tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for podcast audiences to grow. So if you know anyone who might be interested in a show about classic horror, let them know about us. A more financial way that you can support the show is through our Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and there you can donate to the show for as little as a dollar a month. Five dollar patrons receive access to bonus audio that uploads every week, and at ten dollars, patrons get horror short stories written by me once a month. Patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're getting the second remake, and thus third version overall, of The Student of Prague. Ah. And in order for us to see it, we're going to have to travel into the Third Reich. Yes. Join us next week for Joseph Goebbels' version of Student of Prague? Welp. See you then, creatures of the night. <laughs> Bye. Bye.